Today we look at part one of how to stop cancel culture. Welcome to Culture Shift, The Barry Ferris Show. We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. But it's not too late. I hope to equip you with a historical framework applied to current events so you can lead and get America back on track for good. Hello again. Welcome back to The Barry Ferris Show culture shift. Today we'll take a brief look at the first wave of cancel culture, political correctness. There may not have been a strategy on defeating it, but social scientists concede that it was roundly defeated around the early 2000s. Though I don't think all those disparate voices that defeated political correctness were coordinated, we can sure look at what happened and learn from it and put together a strategy to defeat cancel culture. So if social scientists explain that the precursor to cancel culture is political correctness, let's look at it. Like cancel culture, political correctness was primarily developed on college campuses. The notion was to minimize history, the humanities, and Western thought. This concept was developed by the radicals who went to school in the 60s and became tenured professors in the 1980s. They started to suppress speech as early as the late 70s. But by the 90s, they had what looked like a coordinated effort to prevent students from expressing their opinions, especially if they were conservatives or Christians. Why did this take root? At first, it was led by apathy. I mean, in general, the claim was that teachers didn't teach, students didn't think, and parents didn't care. You know, President Ronald Reagan feared that freedom is only one generation away from being lost if it's not remembered, and if it's not thoughtfully remembered. And in Ronald Reagan's prime, almost everyone was patriotic. The problem was that American youth were becoming less informed. I mean, they didn't even know that the Bill of Rights expressed freedom rights. They had little respect or understanding for the struggle. It took centuries of thought and real physical battles to win those freedoms. In Reagan's era, freedom was understood partly because so many people had seen so close at hand the consequences of the tyrants that were opposed to freedom. And they were taught the humanities and Western thought. Through the 1960s, most Americans, Democrats, Republicans, or independents had some education that supported the genius philosophical thinkers of freedom and applauded the political heroes who fought for it. But the tumult of the 60s created a dangerous platform. Not everyone was a rebel, but the majority who weren't rebels became indifferent to Western thought. Ronald Reagan changed that by making it safe to be patriotic again. He won in the largest two landslides since George Washington. But college campuses ignored him or ridiculed him. College campuses were cranking out changes that vilified patriotism and Western thought, and they should be confronted for teaching malpractice. I mean, they focused on dogmatic form of relativism. It's a dangerous thinking that has dangerous consequences. This was articulated brilliantly by Alan Bloom in his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind. Now, Bloom concluded that a pampered, insufficiently educated child turns into this 18-year-old who's particularly susceptible to a type of thinking that closes off certain ideas from discussion. 
They just won't listen to logic or good policy. They fear it. Bloom's argument is interesting. An openness to relativism leads to a closing of critical thinking. The relativism that was so ardently taught by professors is really a dogmatic relativism. It has no humility and no curiosity. It causes the believer to stay out of harm's way, to close off any other point of view. Bloom details how young people are normally dull and lazy, and now, in his opinion, this is 1987, since they're no longer required to read the great books of Western thought, they no longer value wisdom. They no longer derive their beliefs from evidence. They have no understanding of Plato's Republic or Machiavelli's Prince. They, they don't have a reference point to think critically. They never debated that much. They, they just have emotional ideas of what good and evil are. They have no understanding of classical music. And, and they gravitate to the lowest common denominator of morality and thought. He calls their leftist ideas petty rebelliousness. And he says it's not even authentic politics because there's not really a true and genuine debate. In other words, if they knew more about Western thought and what those brilliant minds had to say, they wouldn't be so illogical and frail. But young people no longer seek pleasure from deep thought or pursuit of learning. Bloom concludes his incredible book that students no longer come to university asking questions they have no imagination. They can be brainwashed. He goes on to describe how elite institutions have become nihilistic. This is where there are no values, no family values, no belief in faithfulness, no understanding of delayed gratification, no concept of thrift. This is where God doesn't even exist and life has no intrinsic meaning. In this dogmatic form of relativism, it's an environment where students don't discover their values by thinking through them. They don't learn from the past. They don't go um, anywhere except for in the path of least resistance, which is where their emotions and their drives take them. He criticizes his peers, uh, other philosophic uh, pr professors. He claims that they disregard ethical and political issues and that these philosophy professors, by default, promote irrationalism. Bloom says professors that are in his field promote skepticism toward morality and truth. And he says they're wrong, and they are wrong. But he says they're wrong because we know from rational thought that a good society cannot be based on self-interest alone. Plato and Socrates introduced great concepts that are part of our rich American Western heritage, and there are many others. Bloom said that professors replaced those guys and a bunch of others like them with an absolute relativism. So it's kind of ironic. Those who were initially promoting freedom of thought to escape moral absolutes became adherents to a dogma of thought where absolutely there are no absolutes except leftist ideology. Bloom uses Cornell University as an example of how they devalue genuine free thought. He says that teachers don't really believe that freedom of thought was necessarily a good and useful thing, quote unquote. He exhorts uh, universities to return to a love of wisdom and truth, but he laments that that whole time period might be lost. And he was right. Thought police had begun. That was followed by speech police, and this became known as political correctness. 
There was a denunciation of Western tradition. Courses sprang up in place of the West's greatest works. They were, th those, those great works were replaced with racial and ethnic minority studies, and they included heavy doses of Marxist indoctrination. And then campus radicals did all kinds of things to attempt to cement their ideology to eliminate classical Western philosophy and certainly Christian thought from university life. There's a crazy famous moment when they changed the spelling of woman to W-Y-M-Y-N. <laughs> it's not so, but they did this to make sure that the descriptor excluded the word men from women. Those same leftists ignored the fantastic strides most Americans had with race relations. I mean, in business, church, sports, and everyday life, more and more whites had friendships, networks, and even marriages across all races. It seemed absurd that campus leftists wanted to resegregate by race. To those of us who had great relationships across the board, I mean, in my case, a high school of 50% white and 50% black students and teachers, a business career that includes wonderful people whose native tongue represent at least 15 colorful homelands, different languages. <clears throat> One of my companies, we had 15 different languages represented, just in 400 employees. It, it just seems that racial segregation is the wrong idea. Rational race integration, where we just honor each other for our contributions, and we, we treat each other equally without making an issue of the color of one's skin. That was making great headway, and that whole idea was peaceable and fun. But racial segregation introduces a hostility that had been defeated already. And it magnified this really small minority of knuckleheads who were previously being ignored into irrelevance. Well-regarded professors started to be silenced. How? By accusing them of racism or sexism. All the academic rigor that was using factual and numerical arguments about the pitfalls of affirmative action and positive changes that were already taking place in racial integration, those weren't allowed. But political correctness didn't stop there. I mean, if you made a politically incorrect statement, even if you were a great professor, well-loved, and a worthy spokesman for some conservative cause, you'd have a new risk, an organized attempt to destroy your career. So in the early 90s, there was not just a new curriculum in the university. There was a top-to-bottom endeavor to stifle debate. So everything Bloom had lamented in 1987 became a reality in the early 90s. The leftist radicals protested in 1960s at the very universities where they became tenured professors and senior administrators in the 80s and 90s. They actively rejected the tenets of Western culture. A great author by the name of Richard Kimball called them tenured radicals. His 1990 book on that topic exposes how the humanities is in a state of crisis because it's taken over by the proponents of deconstruction and feminist studies. And it's politically motivated, he said. He said that the traditional tenets of humanistic study are under attack and academic radicals want to destroy the values, methods, and the goals of humanistic study. He was right. I mean, things changed in a really bad way. In the 80s, professors stopped our articulating the ideas of Western civilization. But by the time you were at the early 90s, professors became outright hostile toward Western thought and civilization. In Bloom's 1987 book, he introduced this idea that a mindset that abhorred consequential discussions, debate, and challenging dialogue, if you would abhorred that, that would lead to calls for limits on free speech 
and expression. And boy, was he right. At the same time, conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh used humor to reach tens of millions per week, bringing attention to the same problems. He used a larger-than-life sarcasm that was laced with certainty. He called himself the truth detector and the doctor of humanity and the lover of mankind. He used his unique talent, which he said was on loan from God, to galvanize listeners. His message was direct, very confident, funny, and unabashedly politically incorrect. And even though the left hated him, they agree that his talk show shaped the national political conversation. I mean, he was witty and theatrical, and there were others like Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, but they didn't have the, the same level of humor, and they were not nearly as entertaining. Limbaugh laid out the way things ought to be in his 1993 book, and that was the title of it. He railed against political correctness in all its forms. At the end of the day, Russia's message to young people was simple. Without being educated on the ideas of freedom, young people would become incapable of defending freedom. They'd become people with minds full of mush, he said. So we, we've got a scholar by the name of Tevi Troy over at the American Enterprise Institute, and he argues compellingly that Dinesh D'Souza's 1991 book, Illiberal Education, had a significant impact on winning the battle against political correctness. Dinesh is a great guy. I actually had the honor of meeting him at a conference and visited with him for a few minutes backstage as he was scheduled to speak just before me. He's a genuinely humble, uh, winsome, and really smart guy. He's an Indian American. He graduated from Dartmouth, so he had creds for his undercover mission. He was able to embed himself on college campuses and get students to open up to him. They reported to him how radical university life had become. These students' beliefs were reported in his book, and it shocked the American public of the early 90s. We had no idea how bad it was. We didn't know how deeply thought and speech police had infiltrated the nation's campuses. When you combine Kimball with Bloom and D'Souza, you get a fuller academic picture of what Rush was conveying to the average guy. The problem of political correctness on college campuses was systemic and a threat to our republic. The combined in insights that they provided were genuinely frightening not to mention against the American idea of freedom. D'Souza's book was a sensation in part because of his youthful energy. Now, Bloom says that his success surprised him. He, he was actually talked into making some of his journal notes a book, and then he originally thought it would just be modestly received out of courtesy since he was a recognized scholar. But it took the nation by storm, became a bestseller, sold 500,000 hardback and a whole bunch more paperback books. D'Souza was really different. He was a savvy PR genius. I mean, he promoted his work. He published excerpts, gave interviews, and generated media coverage. He drove discussions about his book on the left and the right. He went everywhere. Thanks largely to the efforts of Bloom, Kimball, and D'Souza, the notion that political correctness on campus was not only a fact but a problem gained wide acceptance. Multiculturalism, as an example, was mentioned in 40 articles in 1981. By 1992, that number had reached more than 2,000. Back then, in those pre-internet days, the major networks still dominated the news scene, and people didn't have algorithms to select what news they saw or didn't see. So when a book like Bloom's or D'Souza's garnered attention across the media landscape, their arguments became part of the national conversation. So... How did we beat back political correctness by the early 2000s? 
and can we learn any lessons that'll help us stop the left's cancel culture craze? Well, according to Tevi Troy with American Enterprise Institute, political correctness died for several reasons. Now, he puts it in paragraph form in his uh, excellent article, and I've reorganized it and numbered it. So I've kind of collapsed it into 12 reasons that the political correctness um, got killed off. Number one was there was this platform to expose political correctness that was built by the academics of Bloom, Kimball, and D'Souza. But uh, even though he doesn't mention Rush, I, I just don't think you can ignore his reach or impact. So number one, you got the academics, plus my thoughts of Rush and and the talk show hosts that were like him, like Sean Hannity and the others. So that really spoke to lots of Americans about and, and popularized the problem. Most Americans, number two, saw political correctness once they understood it as silly. Uh, Troy reveals that at the time of political correctness, most Americans were actually shocked to hear that the principles of Western civilization were being ignored, rejected, or mocked. They'd been taught at school to admire those principles, and even if they had been radicals themselves, to at least value free speech. That's number two. Number three, politicians rejected political correctness on both sides of the aisle. Conservatives rejected it because it was anti-Western, anti-patriotic, and anti-freedom. Many liberals rejected it on censorship grounds. Uh, Tevi points out that, as we've mentioned before in a previous podcast, that the ACLU was so committed to free speech back in the 70s that in 1978, it defended the right of the neo-Nazis to march in the heavily Jewish town of Skokie, Illinois. They wouldn't do that today, but back then the ACLU still cared about free speech and free expression. And don't forget that the 1960s leftist revolt was actually initiated against limitations on free expression. Number four, the president at the time, H.W. George Bush, some people called him George Sr., made a speech against the notion of political correctness. It replaces old prejudices with new ones, he said. It declares certain topics off limits, certain expression off limits, even certain gestures off limits. He offered a solution. And here's his quote. We must conquer the temptation to assign bad motives to people who we disagree with. So this provided a mechanism for others to piggyback on for further argument and to promote um, getting rid of political correctness. Number five, the fight against political correctness was undertaken with a sustained focus. They kept it up. I mean, those are the three books that were mentioned, Bloom and Kimball and D'Souza, and those were regularly discussed in, in other articles from the Washington Times, National Review, the Wall Street Journal, and these outlets ran their own investigative journalism pieces. Can you believe that? They actually did their own work, and they looked at the excesses that were taking place on college campuses. The conservative case against political correctness was thoughtful, and though it was not coordinated, it was unified. Political correctness is bad. Troy also credits politicians besides the president for winning the battle as well. There were senators and there were congressmen who joined in the chorus. They spoke often about political correctness being a bad thing. Even William Bennett, the Secretary of Education, was engaged. For example, he assertively and vocally criticized Stanford University's effort to end its Western civilization requirement. And that's coming from the Secretary of Education. Number seven, with political correctness, criticism came from various political perspectives. So here's what the Wall Street Journal said at the time. Political correctness had encountered an opposition of remarkable diversity. 
Liberals and conservatives on campuses and in the press have joined to define and defend the fundamental Western values of free inquiry and free speech. How about them apples? So this dynamic was not actually deliberate. It just happened because of competition. You had the Dinesh and the Russians out there speaking about it and the Shans, but how many people really agreed with it? Well, these people already kind of agreed with it. They just didn't know what it was. So when it became apparent, they could look at political correctness for what it was, which was silly. And any serious thinker didn't want to be left behind. He wanted to be participating in saying that it was silly and ridiculous. Number eight, the candidates for president in 1992 both talked about the downsides of political correctness. The Democrat who won, Bill Clinton, in his campaign, dressed down rapper and activist Sister Suljah's dangerously violent anti-white rhetoric. This became known as Sister Suljah's moment. That's when a major party candidate is willing to criticize the more extreme element of his own party to reassure centrist voters. And this greatly helped the anti-politically correct movement. Number nine, there was supersaturation. The depth of the negative attention caused political correctness to be universally reviled. Troy insightfully notes that eventually it became passe. Now, you know, when you're watching a football game and uh, one team is ahead 55 to nothing, it becomes boring. Um, in, in politics, when things become boring, you know you've won the argument. And um, pundits were saying, and other observers, that the win was so decisive against political correctness that it was becoming boring to talk about. Commentators were saying, look, it's a boring thing to talk about because all of us agree political correctness is ridiculous. Number 10, there was broad support in opposition to political correctness in the mainstream. So you have Bloom and Kimball and D'Souza who were obviously saying things in a groundbreaking way and those, those authors were not considered left-leaning. But left-leaning authors followed suit. So like for example, Richard Bernstein of the New York Times, he wrote this book called Dictatorship of Virtue in 1994. It chronicled politically correct excesses. Another known liberal, Jonathan Rauch wrote Kindly Inquisitors. It was a book in 1993, and it highlighted the problem of political correctness. So you had that. Number 11, culture kicked in. Hollywood kicked in. Animosity toward political correctness was so universal at the time that Hollywood made a movie criticizing the concept. It's a 1994 film called PCU. Campus radicals in this film are the punchlines. There's one scene where a feminist asks a friend accusingly, you went out with a white male? The accused responds very defensively, I was a freshman, I mean, fresh person. It was ridiculous. Never mind that that movie is not very easy to download or buy. I think it's like 35 bucks. Number 12, low cost for standing up against campus censors became the deal. In other words, it used to take a lot of courage to stand up against political correctness back when Rush and D'Souza and Bloom were talking about it. But as David Brooks observed in 1995 in his essay, you had a cable TV show, a book, and a Broadway production that were carrying the title Politically Incorrect. 
It used to be courageous to stand up against that ideology, but after the heavy lifting was done, by 1995, you didn't even have to be that brave to convey how irrational political correct ideology was. Now, keep in mind that by 1996, Fox News gets started. So it provided its own commentary and expose, and it broadened the accessibility of the argument against political correctness. So by 2000, it appeared that per political correctness had been beaten back if it wasn't totally killed. It was also considered dogmatic relativism, political correctness, dogmatic about being relativistic. And it just wasn't logical. You can't be both dogmatic and relativistic at the same time. So those same professors and administrators did not change their beliefs. What they did, though, is changed their tactics, and they bided their time. Next time, what we're going to look at is how the defeated political correctness doctrine has been replaced by a much more dangerous cancel culture. Cancel culture is not just more dangerous, it's less thoughtful. It has less academic support. The political correctness at least had some academic support. But this cancel culture is far more lethal and it's far more populist. It, it made its way into the public relations and the legal and the HR departments of big biz, big tech, big media, big sports, and big schools. The battle against it requires more than just the hindsight observations that we just looked at of how political correctness was beaten. Cancel culture is far more widespread and far more dangerous, and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight, but there is a way to push back. We're going to look at that next time. Until then, to your freedom. God bless you. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Farah Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryfarrishow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Farah Show on YouTube. See you next time.